Jesus is in the change business. Jesus is about transformation. The, the stories today are stories about transformation, this amazing story in John's Gospel. And one of the stories is about, uh, I want to talk about is Peter's transformation, but then I also want to talk about the community that's transformed. So let's talk about, um, let's talk about context first, okay? Whenever we read a scripture, there's a context. There's three contexts, actually. The first context is you and I, the reader, and the situation that we're in, right? The second context is the actual story, okay? So this story on the beach sometime around 30 AD, right? And then the third context is the actual occurrence of the writing. So in this case, the third context is in about 110. That is uh, when most scholars think that the Gospel of John was written. So we're talking almost 80 years, right, after Jesus walked the earth and died and rose again. So if we keep those three contexts in mind, and we look first at Peter and his story, and what I think this story of transformation is about, actually, is when God, one piece, is what, what I would call our shame space, okay? So we all have a shame space, or a lot of them, and, and God comes in, and it's really God's work of transformation. So, uh, and when we talk about shame, what we're saying is, as I, I'm sure you know, right, when we've done something wrong or someone tells us we've done something wrong, rather than thinking we've made a mistake, we think we're the mistake. And that's the shame space, right? So like when I was three years old, I don't remember this, but we grew up in New York and my parents got a Steuben glass bowl, for those of you of a certain age, for their wedding. And toddler Bonnie, as toddlers are prone to do, toddled across the living room and knocked the bowl off the living room table and broke it. I am 60 years old now. I've heard that story, my mom, Ray, she rest in peace. I heard that story so many times and it created a shame space in me. And what a rough version of the Brene Brown quote that I was gonna say is that when we are in our shame space, we don't really have the ability or the vision to believe that we can change. And that's what Jesus does when he comes on the scene. So we take Peter here, right? And all the disciples, they've gone back to fishing. They've gone back to their old lives. They are discouraged. They are depressed. They're in shame. They stake their lives on this guy. And now he's gone. So they're back to fishing. And Jesus comes to them, right? And he, and he says, go fish, you know, do it again. And they're like, well, we've done it at night. It's all good. And he goes, do it again. So they do it. And then he has this amazing exchange with Peter, right? He's naked and wet and ashamed. <laughs> and he sits down with Jesus. And, you know, Peter, the one who uh, is confession, Peter the rock, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Peter, the one who Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Maybe he was a little upset about that. I don't know. <laughs> Peter, the one who did so many things. Peter, 
the one standing by the fire when Jesus is arrested and someone says, you were the one that was with him. Oh, I have never heard of this guy. I've never met him in my entire life. I can't imagine what Peter is feeling when Jesus shows up on the scene. It has to be shame, some of it anyway. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus doesn't say, oh, don't worry about that. He doesn't bypass it. He just walks right into it, and he asks him three times, right? I'm, I'm sure you picked up on this because you're smart. Three denials, three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And what God does in our shame space is God comes in and heals it so that we can do something. What does he tell Peter? Feed my sheep. Do something. It's an amazing story. And Jesus comes to us wherever we are in our lives, even when we've completely given up, even when we've denied him, and he comes in and he looks lovingly at us. He doesn't put a Band-Aid over our wound, and he heals us, and he gives us something to do. But here's the other great thing about this story. So we have the context of when it was written, or I mean the context of, of Peter's life and what was going on, but we also have the context of when it was written. And this is, um, I have to give credit to uh, Diana Butler Bass for a lot of these ideas. They're not mine but they are, in my opinion, um, astonishing. So if we take this third context, 110, here we are, long time. Most of that time, 66 onward, Rome has been at war with the Jews. They're sick of it. Rome is going after the Jews, the followers of Jesus, anyone who doesn't swear allegiance to the emperor. And the Jewish followers can't believe that Jesus hasn't come back. They can't believe that this kingdom still hasn't come and that things actually have gotten worse. As Diana Butler Bass says, some peace from the king of peace. So here we are again, 110 when it was written, right? The disciples don't know what to do. They've gone back to fishing. And I'm guessing that in 110, folks are tempted to do the same thing. Really, are we still going to be trying to worship this Jesus who we don't know and we don't see? There's nothing. They're stripped down to nakedness, if you will, in shame and complete despair. But here's the amazing part of the context of this story, right? Fishing was a big deal. And Rome is the invisible character in 110. So, I didn't know this until I heard Diana Butler Bass talk about it, and you might know this, but the Sea of Tiberias was actually the Sea of Galilee. And sometime between 14 and 37, the sea was named after the emperor, Tiberius, who killed Jesus. And Herod, trying to please Caesar around the year 20, builds this city just to flatter him, and, and he builds this big this big city called Tiberias on the Sea of Tiberias, which he's changed the name of, and it happens to be, I don't know, three miles south of Magdala. Mary Magdalene, a little Jewish fishing village, small fishing industry owned by the Jews, very local, very successful. But Tiberias needs its own fishing industry, so it builds it up, and everyone, doesn't matter who you were, Jew or pagan, 
if you fished in that sea, you sent taxes to the empire, probably up to 40% to Herod, the city of Tiberias, and to Rome. She called it a factory fishing complex. It makes me think about like how many local bookstores or grocery stores or can you say Amazon do we have? And so every, all the fish belonged to Caesar and it didn't matter which port you used and it didn't matter even if you caught fish, you still had to pay to have your boat on the water. So the Jews are pretty furious, right? Magdala is getting poorer and poorer, they're oppressed, they're in debt. And the pagans down the street are thriving. What's up with that? Where is the Messiah? More money, more fish, bigger boats. And Tiberius is untouched because they worship Caesar. And so this is where Jesus shows up. This beach. This beach. Caesar's beach. Caesar's fish. Caesar's water. And they catch fish. And it's a miracle. And I love this part of the story. We always wonder, why 153? I don't really care. But what I care about is the word large. Dog hagadol, big fish. Same words as in, in the Hebrew New Testament as in the book of Jonah. It's not a whale, it's a big fish. A dog, dog is fish and hagadol is the big, the big fish. Rich people ate large fish. And the fish were sorted by size, and the big fish were immediately shipped off to Rome for the emperor and the imperial feasts. And the little fish were salted and pickled and all those kinds of things and sent to the nearer ports of the empire, so the people of Israel and Palestine. So isn't this great? Not only is Jesus fishing on Caesar's lake, but he's eating Caesar's breakfast. <laughs> isn't that great? And they feast. They feast on the food from the mouth of their oppressors. And this is where Jesus is healing a community of shame, I think. Because he's saying, come, eat. You're hopeless, you're despondent, you're depressed. Come and eat. This is an imperial feast. Because Tiberius has no power in the commonwealth of God. And the poor sit with their emperor, if you will. And this is what the kingdom looks like. Another thing I learned is that in imperial feast, they have a little liturgy at the end. A chief noble stands up and says, I have fed you, do I have your loyalty? Does that sound like anyone we know? Might build towers or golf courses or whatever. <laughs> oh yes, Caesar, we will serve you forever. Caesar's feasts end with a vow of loyalty. And Jesus' feasts ask the question, do you love me? I love you. Do you love me? Three times. It's a feast of fear, really, and shame when you're with Caesar. When you're with Jesus, it's a feast at the edge of the sea of despair. And you know we have plenty of despair. Ukraine, COVID, continued racial injustice, immigration, LGBTQ oppression, in fact, I have a thing on my journal that says, don't say gay. Anyway, Jesus says, eat fish. I'm the last word, not the emperor, not the empire. Breakfast at the edge. Keep setting the feast. God is in the change business. He's always transforming. That's God's trajectory 
I see your shame, I see your despair, and I love you as individuals and as a community. Come, come to the table, feast and be fed, and then go feed my sheep. Amen.